I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Brian Calvert. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 10th, 2013. On today's show, how Colorado's big game is faring under climate change. And do you think you can learn to code your own video game in just one hour? Our studio guest thinks you can. First, a look at the headlines. Canadian geochemists say they have found a way to learn how fracking affects groundwater. Researchers at Concordia University and the University of Quebec in Montreal recently completed an assessment of naturally occurring gases in groundwater in Quebec's Utica shale gas region, which has not yet been developed. Levels of methane, ethane, propane, helium, and radon were measured from more than 100 residential and municipal wells above deep Utica shale. Excessive concentrations of methane were found in 14% of the sampled wells, most of it produced by bacteria in layers near the surface. Elevated concentrations of radon were also discovered. Researchers say the study documents baseline pollution levels that can be used to demonstrate conclusively how fracking impacts groundwater. Utica shale exploration began in 2006, but was enhanced by interest from Denver-based Forest Oil a year later. The company claims that its holdings alone may contain 4 trillion cubic feet of gas reserves. But development there does have its critics, who say an environmental assessment of the region was biased toward industry. We'll be posting links to the study and opposition to our website, howonearthradio.org. Okay, now here's something to wrap your brain around. So, you know, one of the goals in modern physics is to try to somehow explain gravity from what we know about elementary particles. This means combining the theories of quantum mechanics, which describes the behavior of very small things, and relativity, which generally describes the behavior of very large things. Two recent papers may have an interesting way to do that, at least, ma at least mathematically, by combining two concepts, one called entanglement and the other called wormholes. Now, Einstein called entanglement a spooky action at a distance, and it describes how separated particles can be related to each other. The spooky part is that regardless of how far apart the particles are, the measurement of one can affect the measurement of the other. This implies that information travels faster than light, which goes against basic relativity. Now, in two papers in the November issue of the journal Physical Review Letters, Researchers from Canada and the U.S. present calculations that show how entangled subatomic particles could create wormholes if pulled apart. A wormhole can be thought of as a shortcut between two widely separated points in three-dimensional space. So, it could be possible that these entangled subatomic particles can communicate by wormholes. If that's true, and we must say here that it's still unclear how we could figure that out, it would make a lot of physicists happy. Wow. Thanks, Joel. Uh, on the science calendar tonight, we have two Café Scientifiques to choose from, one here in Boulder and one in Denver. Boulder hosts Larry Baggett, Professor Emeritus at the Department of Mathematics at the University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Baggett was blinded as a child but grew up to be a renowned mathematician. He'll be talking about his memoir, In the Dark on the Sunny Side. 
Find him at the Outlook Hotel on Boulder's 28th Street, Frontage Road. Refreshments start at 5.30 p.m. The talk starts at 6. And Denver hosts Ross Kamage of the CU Medical School's Division of Oncology. Dr. Kamage will review some of the -the out-of-the-box tricks doctors are using to keep advanced cancer under control. That discussion starts at 6.30 p.m. at the Winecoop Brewery's Mercantile Room. For more information, visit the websites cafesciboulder.org and cafesciocolorado.org. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Last week, the National Resource Council released some serious warnings about climate change, saying its impacts could be abrupt and surprising. But the National Wildlife Federation says big game is already taking a hit. With us by phone from West Virginia is Dr. Doug Inkley, the senior wildlife biologist for the organization and lead author of a recent report, Nowhere to Hide, Big Game Wildlife in a Warming World. Welcome, Dr. Inkley. Good morning. Uh, Thanks for being here. We appreciate being here as well. Uh, You and your team put together a report that looks exclusively at big game, uh, and mostly in the West. What species did you look at, and why focus on these specifically? Well, we looked at a diversity of big game species, and Colorado, as you know, is blessed with a large number of species from elk to moose to bear. And the reason that we wanted to come out with this report at this point in time is because more and more we are seeing the effects of climate change on our big game species despite their widespread nature and relatively healthy populations. They are not immune from climate change because of this. So now is the time to do it. 2012 was a devastating year for wildlife in many parts of the country because of the extreme drought uh, conditions. Uh, Here in Colorado, there are nearly 180,000 hunters and more than 600,000 wildlife watchers. What can they expect from a warming world? One of the things that Coloradoans have experienced in the last few years is the huge die-off of pine trees due to the bark beetle and uh, also a whole lot of fires, more so than uh, in recent history. This has a big impact on wildlife, and both of these are driven in part by climate change, as the science has shown. So when you have those big fires, you know, you've had bears uh, wandering uh, into Estes Park, Colorado, uh, into a candy shop, into a bar, uh, far more than normal. Uh, You look at Aspen, Colorado, that had nearly 300 bear complaints in August of 2012 during the drought and fires. The year before, they had uh, perhaps 40. So really, it's putting wildlife on the move as they desperately uh, try to find uh, ways to survive and to find food. Uh, Yeah, that's right. And uh, let's talk a little bit about mule deer, too, because mule deer are especially vulnerable to the kind of drought scientists predict uh, as the earth warms up. So what's the scale of the problem now, um, and what, what might that look like in the future? Well, both mule deer and pronghorn are severely uh, potentially affected by drought uh, because of the dry environments in which they already live. And when you have especially dry years, uh, it really knocks their vegetation back. And again, in the dry climate, it is very difficult for those species to recover. Meanwhile, these species uh, do continue to need food. 
one of the issues with climate change is that in hot, dry years, uh, there's a disease called hemorrhagic disease that does uh, proliferate. This disease is, is primarily one of white-tailed deer, but it can also infect pronghorn and mule deer, but not to near the same extent. If we go to the east just a little bit in Nebraska uh, last year because of this hemorrhagic disease which kills deer, in the end, due to cutback in permits and cutback in people participating in hunting, their total white-tailed deer harvest in one year dropped by 30 percent. That's right. And we also think a lot about the pine forests here in Colorado, but you guys looked also at the habitat of sagebrush for the pronghorn antelope. What's happening to that habitat specifically under climate change, and what is that doing to antelope populations? The entire ecology of the sagebrush ecosystems, which used to be widespread across the West, um, are at risk from climate change. It's a combination of factors. Climate change interacts with other factors. A cheatgrass, an invasive species, is widespread in Colorado and throughout the West. What that does, the cheatgrass uh, provides a source of fuel for fire in these sagebrush habitats, which normally didn't burn much. So. A lot of the habitat is being destroyed. In combination with climate change, you're creating ripe fire conditions for this cheatgrass to burn uh, all over the place. And as a result, these two factors together are in some places wiping out all of the sagebrush because it takes, uh, you know, 100 years to recover. And why do antelope need sagebrush? Well, that's their primary food source. Uh, they do eat other things, but that's where you find them. In Colorado and Wyoming to the north where I used to live uh, are fortunate in having a lot of antelope, but uh, they're stressed by the drought. They end up uh, killing a lot of sagebrush or damaging it because the sagebrush is in poor condition and these animals need to graze on it. Uh, I am a Wyoming native. I am very familiar with sagebrush. <laughs> um, yes. There was a... <laughs> There was at least one surprise in your report. Uh, that was elk. They're actually doing better, uh, at least for now. Um, can you explain why that is and how that might change? They are indeed doing a little bit better. Populations, for example, in Wyoming have gone up a little bit. And with climate change, it's expected that it might continue to go up a bit. You know, elk are fairly diverse in that they can eat uh, many different plants. Uh, they have a lot of altitudinal change uh, between winter and summer, so they can get to the higher elevations, uh, you know, as the summers get a little bit milder and, and the winters get a little bit milder. Uh, that is a problem, excuse me, that is not a huge problem because they're so diverse in the habitats that they're able to use. So again, they could potentially go up. And so we've got all these problems, we've got all these animals <laughs> with all these problems, um, but it's, sort of, it's fair to say that uh, these animal populations are facing a lot of different threats. Uh, there's oil and gas development, mining, uh, other types of loss of habitat. Why worry about climate change right now above all these factors? Well, climate change is interacting with the other factors. When you see the rapid uh, oil and gas development, such as on the Rhone Plateau uh, and drought there, combined, uh, their habitat is being disturbed a lot. The problem with the rapid oil and gas development is it not only destroys the habitat directly of our big game species, but it does so indirectly by putting more carbon in the atmosphere from the use of those resources, making climate change accelerate even more. It's a double whammy for wildlife, which is why we're pushing a clean energy future that is depending upon other sources of energy, such as wind turbines, solar farms, and, and other types of clean energy. 
Okay, well, thank you very much, Dr. Inkley. We'll uh, keep an eye out for that, and we'll all do what we can, I'm sure. Uh, for Dr. Inkley's full report, go to the website nwf.org. Thank you. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. What does it take to be a programmer? What does it even mean to be a programmer? Contrary to popular belief, programming is not some magic trick that turns ones and zeros mystically into angry birds. In fact, programming, or coding as it is also called, can be surprisingly simple to learn. You can do it, and you can do it in just one hour. That is, if you use the 3D video game built by a team here at CU Boulder. The coding tutorial is being offered for free as part of Computer Science Week, which ends Friday. Here in our studio to talk about the university's so-called Hour of Code is Alex Reppening, a computer science professor at CU. Thanks for coming down, Alex. Thank you for having me. So can you uh, explain, first of all, what is Computer Science Week? The Computer Science Week is now a big event that is trying to get roughly 10 million students to give computer science at least a try. So it's basically one week during which many students are being invited throughout the nation to spend one week picking one out of roughly 30 different tutorials to create a game, to program a cell phone, to do something that they haven't done before and, and just take a chance and, and give it a try. And these can be students in schools or just anybody at home. So it's a programming free-for-all in a way. Everyone gets a hand in it. Exactly. So what is specifically the hour of code? Specifically, I mean, there, there's a, a, a total of many different tutorials, but, but the activity taking place this week is, is a call to action where, where it is believed that there is, is a huge and, and increasing gap between the needs for computer programmers and, and the supply. And so in this particular week, there has been a lot of advertisement to, to get people excited about this. So, so the Computer Science Week is an organization that has send out emails to many schools and teachers to say, please participate in this event with the goal to actually get roughly 10 million students to participate. So why you say you need to fill the ranks of programmers. Uh, are we running low on programmers? Is that the main goal of this week? Actually, we are. The computer science, interestingly, is one of the few professions that in, in where the supply and the demand is actually very quickly and very alarmingly go going apart. So, so th there are just not enough people interested in, in computer science. And there's partially this is because of the 2000 uh, bust where, where people started to believe that computer science may be something that is just being outsourced to India and um, not many people are even interested in this career anymore. So so it's a, it's a field that needs more people to come in, I guess. Uh, what about people... Who aren't interested in becoming programmers. Is there something in this week that's still of interest to them? Absolutely. I mean, we have been doing this kind of research for almost 20 years. 
And, and one of the initial statements that, that uh, really prompted me to, to go deeper with this research was a girl at a school saying, you know, programming is hard and boring. Like and, math is hard. We've heard that before, too. <laughs> and so clearly this is not, not a trade-off, right? She didn't say programming is hard but very fulfilling, so it's basically mm. hard and boring. And so, so, <laughs> so these became two dimensions that, that we started to analyze, where, where essentially the hard part is a cognitive part. It's basically saying that maybe the programming tools are just too hard. Maybe, you know, this idea of people typing in text into a computer is just very difficult. So we developed these ideas of, you know, drag and drop programming, visual kinds of programming to make programming much more accessible. But then there's also the boring part, which is essentially about, you know, if you give people tasks such as, you know, compute maybe prime numbers, most of them say, you know what, that's, that's really an activity that I couldn't really care less about. So I, I don't want to do this. And, and, and these have been the two dimensions that we've been exploring over the tw last 20 years. But some people would find that a fun puzzle. I, I know from my experience, I can get so absorbed into programming because I just want to get it to work. And there's some sense of satisfaction of ending up with a program that does something that's potentially useful. So, you know, maybe it just takes a little practice to find out the enjoyment of what programming is. And it's not just sitting at a keyboard and typing in, a, a, you know, some lines of code. Um, how do you how do you teach programming, though, to kids? I mean, a lot of people think of programming as something you might learn maybe in high school or more likely in college with, you know, Fortran and uh, all these C and everything. How do you teach that to, I don't know how young the kids are. Well, they're, they're actually as young as, you know, for first graders. So, so we have six-year-old kids who are participating in, in, in this. But uh, the main idea, and that may sound somewhat like a contradiction, is to actually get kids to be excited about coding by focusing less on the coding initially, at least. Because we, we find that if you get them into activities where, for instance, you know, with the kinds of tools that we have developed, if, if they can make games, if they can draw their own characters, if they can write their own stories, if they can make three-dimensional characters, that's where they start to get really invested and excited about the creativity of the process. And once they have that, then they say, oh, now I want to bring this to life. And that's where programming comes in. Do they enjoy showing off to their friends, hey, look, I, I made this game that you can play? Oh, absolutely. All, all the games that uh, have been produced, we, we collect them, and, and they can showcase these games to each other, and they like to play each other's games, so they're very excited about the fact of you know that they can not only create these games, but that they can actually share them with, with their friends. Now, you mentioned before uh, the girl who said it's hard and boring. Uh, are girls underrepresented in programming and any other groups that you're trying to bring in who usually don't think of programming as a job they might do? Generally speaking, they are by far. So e even at the University of Colorado in the computer science department, you know, we have, uh, I think we have more, more than average. I think the average is roughly 10% participation by women. But, but for instance, in, in our, in our project, the scalable game design project, we have a participation of women of almost 50%. And, and is that just getting them interested early? And your hope that that carries on through college and into jobs? Yes, that, that is a very important factor. And even in, in some of the school districts where this has been going on for some time, we have 
able to track this. So if you were able to get them excited as early as middle schools, this has actually carried through high school. So the participation of, of for instance, uh, women in computing in, at the in Boulder Valley School District is, is has gone up from from a very low number to something that is, I think, believe in you know forty percent. So one of the tools is something called agent sheets. I believe you. You created agent sheets, is that correct? correct? So what, what is that, and why is it a helpful way to teach programming? So agent sheets early on, you know, it, it came to existence in 1995, and it introduced this idea of uh, drag-and-drop programming. So very early on, we, we believed that this idea that, you know, you're just one semicolon away from total disaster <laughs> in the classroom was a bad idea. So we said, you know, we, we need to solve this syntactic challenge. And, and so with these kinds of visual programming languages, we overcome these problems. But more recently, we also started to look, you know, what is beyond that? So in our mo most recent research, we, we looked at, you know, maybe there's more than just syntax, because syntax, to give you an analogy, if I give you a word processor, and then I say, and I enable spell checking, that's basically the equivalent of, you know, drag and drop programming, because you know, it's really hard to make a syntactic error. But then if I go ahead and tell you, now go and write a best-selling novel, you'll just laugh at me realizing that you know this isn't a good enough tool so, so the next challenge for us has been to actually address the semantic challenge to say what is it going to take for people to write meaningful useful or running programs that has been our research so this takes it at a higher level so that you know the students don't have to type in the if for then statements and make sure that they get all their semicolons and indentations correct but just it creates a more intuitive way to just say, do this, or do this if this happens. Correct, and, and without going into any kind of technical detail, but in agent sheets and agent cubes, what, what essentially happens to support the programming process is that, um, that the programming environment runs your program one step into the future and annotates you and tells you what is your program about to do, and then you realize, oh, that's not actually what I wanted it to do and so that's how it helps you to to see the difference between the program you have and the program you want and that's what, what we generally call debugging so can you uh, let our listeners know where can they go online to find out more about uh, educate the computer science education week or the hour of code so, so that there's a whole website dedicated to a, a number of pro of uh, these tutorials and that's uh, at our of code.com and if they would like to go to specifically to the University of Colorado tutorial they can go there directly so that would be our of code.com slash AC and and there's no space in, in the URL well thank you very much for coming into the studio today Alex thank you that was Alex Repening, professor of computer science at the University of Colorado. To find out more on how you can code, go to csedweek.org or code.org or the other links Alex mentioned that we will put online on our webpage on howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bartell. Brian Calvert produced this week's episode. Thank you, Brian. Uh, thank you, Joel and Jim for and Jim Pollan for today's headlines, and thank you, Jim, for engineering today's show. 
Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Uh, additional music this morning from Craftwork. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Brian Calvert. And I'm Joel Parker.